Okay, it's Patreon birthday shoutout time, and October is always the busiest month for birthdays. I have such a long list in October. I thought maybe my patrons would be more evenly spread out, but I assure you they are not. I think last year I did this in three different episodes to get everyone in, but we're just going to do a massive happy birthday message. So happy birthday to Ariel, Aida, Anastasia, Anna, Ariane, Carolyn, Shakita, Claire, Connie, Danielle, Deb, Donna, Doug, Gina, Jenny, Caitlin, Kathy, Carrie, Christy, Kristen, Lil, Maggie, Mary, Nicole, PJ, Portia, Sage, Sandra, Sarah, Senta, Sharon, Sydney, and Tara. Whoo, I got through it all. Happy birthday to all of you. Thank you so much for your support over on Patreon. I hope you have a wonderful birthday month. It is spooky season. It's really, in my opinion, the best time to have a birthday. So happy birthday and, of course, happy spooky season. Shakita Tate was called a rising star of the Baton Rouge legal community as she decided, not long out of law school, to strike it out on her own. One night while working late at her locked and secured office building, Shakita was killed and the suspect list ended up including most of the people in her files. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines and another weekly episode, or at least mostly weekly. Everyone needs occasional time off, I try to tell myself that. But if this nearly weekly content is not enough for you, I do post daily two-day in true crime history videos. You can find them on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. They are 60-second videos with an overview of a case every day, mostly every day. And if you follow me on any of those platforms, you will see them. I have been doing them for a few months. I wanted to see if I would stick with it before I announced it. So there is plenty of 60-second content to catch up on. And one more thing. I do know I said I was done with events for the year, but I did have an opportunity to join in a massive live show event on the first weekend in December in the Atlanta area. Pretend Radio, True Consequences, Already Gone, Southern Gothic, and several more shows will be there. It will actually be three live shows in one night, followed by a meet and greet true crime case discussion time. It's also a small, intimate venue so that we can provide a better experience for those who do attend. So the tickets are incredibly limited. So limited that if each podcast coming sells five tickets, we would have the fire marshal shut us down. So if you are in the Atlanta area or you can get yourself there, the show is going to be incredible, but I do recommend you buy tickets as soon as you can. The link to the tickets and more information is in the show notes. So on to this week's episode. The main sources for this episode are the reporting done by WAFB 9 News in Baton Rouge and a 2015 Dateline episode called Shining Star. I also used some information from a Crime Watch Daily episode, which is also linked in the show notes, along with all the other sources. This case centers around Shakita Tate, who worked her way up from childhood poverty to become an attorney. She was the fourth of seven children with her father mostly out of the picture and her mother dealing with substance abuse. She was raised partially by her grandparents and partially by her protective older siblings. Shakita had grown up in Baton Rouge, but she moved to Chicago towards the end of high school and graduated there. She then attended Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta, Georgia, being the first person in her family to attend college. Clark Atlanta is an HBCU, which means historically Black colleges and universities. HBCUs have a pivotal role in American culture and history. These schools, in spite of what it may sound like, are not segregated by race. 
though the student bodies of these schools do generally remain predominantly black. One notable exception, though, is Bluefield State College in West Virginia, which is an HBCU but has by far a predominantly white student body. To be considered an HBCU, the college or university had to have been established prior to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended legal segregation, and the initial intent of the school has to have been to provide higher education to Black students who were otherwise excluded from colleges due to their race. Clark Atlanta, which was called Atlanta University when it started, was not the first HBCU, but it was the first one in the South, and it opened in 1865, just five months after the end of the Civil War. HBCUs have had a significant impact on the United States by increasing economic opportunities and are credited as a major contributor to the establishment and expansion of the Black middle class prior to and after the Civil Rights Act. Shakita graduated from Clark Atlanta with a BA in English and moved back to Baton Rouge after graduation. She worked at a couple different jobs after school, including as an instructor at the Timbuktu Academy at Southern University, which is another HBCU. Growing up, Shakita's grandfather always said she would either be a preacher or a lawyer with her aggressive ability to argue and Well, she ended up deciding on becoming a lawyer. She attended Southern University Law Center, passed the bar on her first try, and she was sworn in as an attorney in October 2004, right around her 29th birthday. Shakita had a passion for helping those who were vulnerable. Her preferred field was criminal law, defending those who needed a fierce advocate. She started her solo practice just months after becoming an attorney in January 2005. In addition to criminal defense law, she also did civil and family law cases. And she began making really good money, particularly with the civil cases, and she enjoyed some of the nicer things in life after never really having them. Shakita was talented, driven, and also independent and occasionally uncompromising. So it surprised people when she met Greg Harris and was ready to settle down with him almost immediately. How they met, though, didn't surprise anyone. Greg had cut Shakita off in traffic, so she blared her horn at him and started yelling. At the next red light, they found their cars side by side. But instead of glaring at each other, they smiled. The two pulled over and exchanged numbers. Shakita leaning on the horn at someone who cut her off in traffic, but then being confident enough to get his number afterwards, definitely tracked. Shakita being ready to settle down for married life almost immediately, not so much. But she did fall head over heels, and the two married in February 2008 and lived in Greg's house in a Baton Rouge suburb called Baker. The neighbors saw a happy young couple with all the signs of success, like Greg driving a Mercedes and Shakita a Hummer. When Hurricane Gustav hit in September 2008, Greg went around checking on everyone, and as a contractor and skilled carpenter, he helped his neighbors fix damage. So people saw a young, professional, and kind couple, but what they saw on the outside was not a reflection of what was happening on the inside. Within the first year of their marriage, Shakita started telling her sister that she wasn't sure marriage was for her. Greg's family was also aware that there were some issues in the relationship. From what they could see, Greg wanted more time with Shakita while she spent a lot of time working. So Greg prioritized the relationship in their eyes, whereas Shakita prioritized building her law practice. But no one thought it was more than just the normal adjustments to married life because Shakita and Greg kept the deeper issues private. One of those issues was Greg's temper. 
It seems no one in their families knew that on December 22, 2007, just weeks before their wedding, Shakita called 911. She was hysterical and she sounds terrified. She said her fiancé was hitting her and she believed he may have broken her arm. He had also, quote, choked her. She pleaded with the dispatcher to help her, saying that he was a big guy and, quote, I can't believe this is who he is. Shakita said that the argument started over accusations she was cheating on Greg after he saw a text that someone had sent her calling her sexy. Greg started yelling at her that she's nasty, and then he began grabbing at her. She tried to get into a room by herself, but he wouldn't leave her alone, and he threw her on the bed. When the police arrived, Shakita was crying, her hair was a mess, and she had fresh scratches on her neck and her arms. Greg claimed that Shakita had put her hands on him as well, and he did have some marks, but Shakita said those were in self-defense. The responding officers opted to cite both of them for domestic violence. Shakita's charge was later dropped, but Greg's was not. We don't know if this was an isolated incident or not. It does sound like it may have been the first such incident by what Shakita said in the 911 call about not being able to believe this was who he was. If it happened again, we don't know because one, Shakita never talked about this, and two, this was the only time she called 911 and had it documented. Whatever Greg said to her afterwards made her think it wouldn't happen again, and the two were married even before Greg's criminal case was settled. Shakita's family was heartbroken when they later learned about this and that she had gone through it alone. Her sister believed Shakita never said anything because of the stigma of being a victim rather than as the powerful defender of the downtrodden that she was in court. And frankly, we have to admit there is a stigma to staying with someone after physical abuse. But as we saw with the Jeanette Reyna case from a few weeks ago, where a domestic violence advocate was killed by her abuser, we can't look at someone and think of them as the quote-unquote type of person this sort of thing happens to or doesn't happen to. The most Shakita told her family was that she was second-guessing married life, and on the morning of Thursday, February 19th, 2009, she talked to her sister Danita on the phone about it. Danita worked for Shakita in her law office, but was sick that day, so she was staying home. Shakita again said something about how she didn't think the married thing was for her anymore. And Danita just sort of said, okay, and then got off the phone. It's not that she didn't feel for Shakita. It's that Shakita had said it before. And then the next thing Danita knew, she and Greg were out on a date, having a great time, deciding to work things out. So she didn't really take it seriously. And again, she had no clue that there had ever been violence in the relationship at any point. After talking to her sister, Shakita went about her day as usual. She was in court at one point and even stopped to talk to some reporters on camera about the case she was working on. Then she went back to the office to get to work on an upcoming trial she had. It was starting on Monday, and it was the trial of Julius Thomas. He was charged for the murders of 61-year-old Hillary Swallow and his 17-year-old son, Brandon. They were killed while Hillary's 7-year-old grandson hid in a closet. As the only witness to the murder, it was anticipated this child would have to testify. So as you can imagine, this was a case where emotions were running high, and Shakita had some work to do to get things filed on time. Around 5.15 to 5.30, Shakita's legal assistant, Lessie, was heading home. She told Shakita not to work too late, 
because Shikita had been remodeling her downtown office and the workers had refinished the bookshelves earlier that day. The whole place smelled like varnish. And Lessie thought it was best to just let the place air out and not sit around more than a few hours inhaling the fumes. So this don't work too late wasn't just normal banter. Lessie had a reason for it. And Shikita assured Lessie she had no plans to stay terribly late. She had a quick brief to finish up and then she would head home. According to Greg, Shikita called him a bit before 7 p.m. and asked if he could bring her something to eat. He said sure and drove the 25 minutes out to her office to bring her some fast food. The building her office was in, the State National Building, is a secure building that requires a pass to get in after 5.30 p.m. So Shakita would have had to go downstairs to let him in. They went back up to the office to eat while Shakita kept working. A little before 7.30, a client came by to drop something off. They were greeted downstairs by Greg to do the handoff. And we know the time this happened because another attorney who also had office space in the building came by. His law partner had forgotten his keys, so he was coming to let the other guy in. When they got there, they saw that the door was propped open with a book. As they walked in, Greg came up to them and said that it was his book. He had used it to prop open the door so he could get back in. And Greg said he then went back up to the office and was helping organize things when Shakita told him to go ahead and go home. He was tired and she had another client meeting that night and then she would be leaving. Greg left around 8.30 p.m., which could not be independently confirmed, but we do know it had to have been at least that late or possibly later because of a parking ticket. Greg had parked at the lot across the street from the office building, but he hadn't paid. The time on the ticket for non-payment was precisely 8.23 p.m. When Greg got home, he said he went to bed since he was tired. He woke up in the early morning hours, 2 or 3 a.m., and was upset at first that Shakita wasn't home. He suspected that she was meeting up with another man. He tried to call her, but she didn't answer. He called her sister Danita, waking her up, but Danita also had no idea where Shakita was. Greg eventually drove back out to the office building at some point before 6 a.m. on February 20th to see if Shakita was still there. He saw her vehicle parked in the same spot it had been in the night before, and the light from her office was on. But he couldn't get into the building since it wasn't open for the day and he did not have one of those after-hours key cards. So Greg called 911 and said he needed someone to come check on his wife who hadn't come home from work the night before. While he was waiting, he saw a patrolman nearby and flagged him down. The officer was able to get someone in the office to open the door for him, and he went up to Shakita's office to check on her while he had Greg wait outside. When he entered the reception area of Shakita's office space, everything looked fine. But then stepping into Shakita's office, everything was not fine. He found 34-year-old Shakita Tate dead on the floor and blood all around. The patrolman backed up out of the building and secured it while waiting on homicide investigators to arrive. Greg became hysterical at this point, learning that Shakita was dead, and he had to be put in a patrol car just so he had somewhere to sit and calm down. Soon enough, Shakita's family, concerned from Greg's earlier phone call, also started arriving, and what they saw was Greg in the back of a police car without the context. 
They were informed of Shakita's death, and they waited in the parking lot as well, hoping to get some updates. Meanwhile, up in the office, the police were processing a somewhat confusing crime scene. So let's go ahead and talk about it. Shakita was found having been stabbed 31 times and had an additional 21 incised wounds, many to her face. And if you're wondering what is classified as a cut or incised wound versus what is considered a stab, I'm going to tell you. A stab wound goes deeper than it is long on the skin. An incised wound or a cut is longer along the skin than it is deep into the tissue. So it's really a length to depth calculation. So in all, there were 43 separate injuries with a sharp object that were counted. And at least two of them were fatal stab wounds to Shakita's neck. There was also evidence of blunt force trauma. Shakita had been stabbed after death, and certainly long after she stopped being able to fight back. This kind of overkill points towards a rage usually seen in cases where the victim knows their killer. Now here's where the crime scene gets a little odd. With 43 wounds, obviously there was blood all over the place, but the killer did not track any blood through the office at all. No footprints in the blood heading to the reception area, no blood on a button in the elevator, nothing in the stairwell. So this person was either lucky, careful, or well-prepared, possibly all three. Now on to the next odd thing. In Shakita's left hand, which was open, there were dozens of strands of hair, I think it's so much that we can just go ahead and call it a clump of hair. It was long, black, and straight. Because there were other signs Shakita put up a fight, the initial thought was that these hairs were pulled off the killer's head, and that certainly pointed towards a woman, based on the style and the length of the hair. And when hair is pulled violently off of someone's head, It always takes with it skin cells and or roots that can be tested for DNA. However, none of these hairs had roots, and the lab determined that they were from multiple people. This hair was from a wig, weave, or extensions. But it still indicated a woman since that length of hair just really isn't popular with men. But the investigators were not entirely convinced, and there were a few things that stood out to them. For one thing, Shakita's hand was mostly open with some slight bending of her fingers. Had she yanked out someone's hair shortly before dying, they would have expected her fist to be closed around it. But let's go ahead and say that her hand at some point relaxed and opened. The hair still doesn't make a lot of sense in this scenario because it wasn't all tangled around her fingers the way it would be if she grabbed a handful of long hair and pulled. It was almost too perfectly woven through her fingers, and most of it was just lying on her hand. Additionally, the lab said it didn't appear to have been ripped at all, but rather cut straight across. It looked frankly, planted. So now let's move on to the issue of a robbery. Only one thing was stolen from the office, Shakita's wallet. All of the electronics were accounted for. She was still wearing her diamond earrings, a diamond ring, and a Tag Heuer watch. And those are two to $3,000 watches. Her purse and the keys to her Hummer were also left in plain sight. The only thing missing, other than the murder weapon, was Shakita's wallet, which she always kept in her purse. So someone went into her purse for the wallet, so why didn't they just grab the whole purse? Shakita owned luxury goods. Her purse was likely worth a lot of money by itself. So if this was a robbery motive, 
Why would someone take the wallet only and not anything else of value that was right there for the taking? So robbery was clearly not the motive of taking the wallet. And the investigators would confirm this pretty quickly because that wallet was not missing for long. A woman called the police after she saw a news segment about Shakita's murder. She had been driving down Gardier Lane in Baton Rouge around 10.30 on the night of the murder when she saw a Gucci wallet just lying in the street. She pulled over and picked it up. Looking inside, she saw that it was Shakita's, and she happened to know Shakita Tate. The wallet had her ID and all of her credit cards in it. The woman took the wallet home, intending to reach out to Shakita the next day to return it. But then she learned Shakita had been murdered, so she called the police instead. Though it may not seem so immediately, the discovery of this wallet actually gave some information that would turn out to be pivotal in this case. But some of the significance of the wallet was deduced pretty much immediately. For one thing, it was found at 10.30 at night on the night of the murder, so this narrowed down the time of the murder. It had to have happened before then. The wallet also contained all of Shakita's credit cards. So someone took the time to go into her purse to steal a wallet only to discard it quickly without taking anything from it. That made it even more clear that this wasn't a robbery gone wrong. And if you're from Baton Rouge or the area, like of course the investigators were, there may be something else you've noticed, something I wouldn't have picked up on being that I'm not from there, and it's where this was found, Gardier Lane. Gardier is a area that has been described as high crime in all of the reporting, and it's also a low-income area. The median income for Gardier is below the federal poverty line. That's the median income. The investigators believed that the killer had purposely left the wallet out in plain sight in a high-crime area at night in the hopes that someone would pick it up and decide to use one of the credit cards, putting themselves then at the center of a murder investigation. The disposal of the wallet was an attempt to send the police on the wrong course, pursuing whoever it was who found the wallet. But instead, the wallet was found by a good Samaritan who immediately turned it in. She basically thwarted part of the killer's plan. And of course, the placement of this wallet did tell the police that Shakita's killer was on Gardier Lane shortly after the murder. This is eight miles south of her downtown office. The hope was that there might be some security or traffic camera footage between point A and point B to help the police figure out who did this, whether those cameras were near the office building or down to Gardier. Unfortunately, None of the cameras they did have caught much, nothing that was really usable, and the camera that had been pointed at Shakita's office building had been knocked out prior due to a storm and had yet to be repaired. But the investigators did have a ready-made suspect list. In addition to the trope of the husband did it, and trust me, they were looking into Greg, They also had Shakita's entire client list. As a criminal defense attorney, she defended, let's be blunt, criminals. I mean, she defended innocent people as well, I am sure, but not everyone was innocent. Some of them were guilty, some of them were found guilty, and sent to prison in some cases. Maybe they or their families were not happy with Shakita or blamed her for a negative outcome. The police didn't find any formal complaints against her, and those who worked with her were not aware of anyone who would be that angry with her or with her work. The investigators still were following up on the client list, flagging any potential suspects, and they started working on clearing people, mostly through alibis. 
In the meantime, they had Shakita's husband, Greg Harris, come to the station for a formal interview. He was the last person to see Shakita alive. This interview, though, it soon enough became an interrogation. But before it took that turn, they did get his consent to search both his house and his car. Greg did not lawyer up, and he waived his Miranda rights, agreeing to talk to them. Greg told the story about going to the office to bring Shakita dinner. He mentioned how she had a client to see and something about a deposition and how she told him that he should go home. And that was, according to Greg, the last he saw her. The investigators assured him they would be able to check out this story. Thanks to these security cameras and cell phone pings, they would be able to track his movements and they would know if he went straight home or not. Now, the truth was they did not have such evidence and they hadn't been able to even check his cell phone records at that point to know if they could have traced his movements. It was a bit of a bluff because they wanted Greg to think they could track him so that he would be motivated to tell the truth. Should he be lying about going straight home to Baker, they would have expected his story to then change. Which it did, but not immediately. They had to ask him specifically, when was the last time he was on Gardier Lane? If Greg had gone straight home, there is absolutely no way he would have been anywhere near Gardier Lane. Like I said, Gardier Lane is eight miles south of the office building. Baker is north of downtown by at least that much. When asked specifically about Gardier Lane, Greg looked confused, and then he said, Gardier Lane, and then he said he had actually been there the night before, meaning the night of the murder. But then he began to tell a story he wasn't entirely consistent on. He gave two different versions. One, he did go straight home and picked up his dogs and then went to Gardier Lane. And the other story was that he went to Gardier Lane before going home. The reason he was there, according to him, was that he was buying steroids and his supplier, dealer, lived in Gardier. He had hesitated to mention it if he didn't have to because it was an illegal drug buy. Greg told the police that his dealer actually wasn't there, so he left without getting the steroids. But he did provide the police with the guy's name. And for the record, this guy said it had been a while since he had seen Greg and he denied that he had ever sold Greg steroids. But really, what else is he going to say? Yes, I'm a drug dealer, thanks for asking. That wasn't going to happen, but I don't know that what the guy said really means much in the big picture. What Greg was really doing was admitting to being first at the crime scene and then next on the same street where the killer left Shakita's wallet. Two different key locations, a 15-minute drive apart, and Greg is saying he was at both of them the same night and around the same time frame that Shakita's killer was as well. It's quite a coincidence. The investigators decided at this point to take a bad cop, bad cop approach. Greg was sitting in a bit of a corner in the small, cramped interrogation room, and both investigators were sitting pretty close to him literally backing him into a corner. And that's when they began accusing him of killing Shakita, and during a very heated interrogation, he continued to deny it. During the interrogation, they learned that the crime scene investigators had found something at Shakita and Greg's house, a bleach bottle that had been left out. There was a brown stain on the bleach bottle that they were testing to see if it was blood. So Greg was confronted about what he was trying to do with bleach, insinuating that he was covering up something like blood stains. Greg said he had actually been home doing laundry, and they asked what he was washing, and he said khakis and some shirts. One of the investigators sounded surprised and asked Greg why was he bleaching khaki pants, 
since bleach will fade or even leave spots on the pants. And Greg, at this point, he's yelling that he always uses bleach when he's washing khakis. And I'm not nearly domestic enough to know if that's normal or not. The only thing I have bleached in recent memory were my daughter's Irish dance socks, and that was literally against my will. If you find the bleaching khakis story plausible, you can let me know on social media. But regardless, the bleach bottle alone wasn't the point. It was that stain that was found on the bottle, and it was sent to the lab to test for DNA. While Greg was being interviewed, they did run a background check on him and found that he actually had two outstanding warrants, both for failure to appear in court. One was from a minor charge, a 2006 seatbelt violation. The other was the 2007 domestic battery case stemming from the incident with Shakita. Though Greg had showed up to a March 2008 court date to enter a not guilty plea, he did not show up to the May 8th pretrial conference and a warrant was issued for his arrest. This let the investigators know that one, Greg lied when he said his relationship with Shakita had no issues, and two, they now had a reason to hold him as they continued to investigate the murder. Greg was arrested on the spot for these outstanding warrants. While Greg was in jail, a call came in with a tip in Shahida's case. It was actually called in more than once, and the caller was a woman who did not give her name. She said that she had been sitting in a Chili's restaurant when she overheard a client of Shakita's confess to killing her. The tip was detailed enough to give the name of the woman who supposedly confessed to killing Shakita. This woman and her girlfriend had hired Shakita to handle an adoption. The tipster said Shakita was in a love triangle with the two women, and that was the motive for her murder. Both of the women were interviewed, and the woman who supposedly killed Shakita had short hair, and she did not wear wigs or extensions. So the police knew she wasn't the source of the hair in Shakita's hand, but they believed it was planted anyway. Both of the women had alibis, and both of the women were rather confused on why someone thought they were in some type of love triangle with their adoption attorney. The police were confused about that, too, because this tip was so specific, yet so off-base that the investigators wondered about who called it in. Though they tried to remain anonymous, they actually didn't do anything to hide their number, so the police traced the call to Texas and made contact with the woman. They told her they were contacting her about the murder of Shakita Tate, and the woman said she actually knew Shakita. They asked how, and she said, she's married to my brother. The person who called in this tip that temporarily, at least, took the investigation away from Greg Harris was his own sister. The police wondered if Greg managed to get his sister this information she needed so she could call in a fake tip. But Greg's family later said that it was actually Greg's father who gave the sister the information, and he didn't tell her to call it in. They were just discussing the case and the theories about who could have killed Shakita. He had heard a rumor about this love triangle from another lawyer, and he mentioned it to Greg's sister. But these women were quickly cleared as they had no motive, and there was no evidence that pointed towards them. Plus, their alibis checked out. The investigation into the murder of Shakita Tate was going to continue. And two weeks after her murder, the police conducted another search of her house. On that search, a digital recorder was found in the back of a closet. The investigators hit play on it and heard an argument between Greg and Shakita that further contradicted his story that all was well in their marriage. 
It's not clear which one of them recorded it, but the voices are very clearly Greg and Chiquita's. It sounds like an argument about dividing up assets because Greg can be heard yelling about how Shakita moved into his house, which was already fully furnished, and how she wasn't going to leave him with nothing in his house. Shakita brings up the car that he drove, the Mercedes, which was in her name, and pointed out how he was going to get to keep that. The argument ended with Greg angrily telling Shakita that what goes around comes around. This wasn't the only piece of evidence they had that the two were on the verge of splitting up. The investigators learned that a month before the murder, Shakita rented a new apartment near her office. She had utilities turned on and began moving some small things into it. Not just that, but she had paid three months' rent, so it definitely looked like she was planning on moving in. While a breakup and the loss of control of a partner during that breakup has definitely been a motive for many murders before, the police discovered that Greg may have had another motive, and that was money. Shakita made a good living as an attorney, and she had some civil suit settlements that paid out well. One of them was a half a million dollar payout, And while I don't know her exact split with her client, it's generally around 33 to 40% of that that goes to the attorney. And that's a lot of money in the bank. And unfortunately for Greg, money was not something he had. In early February, about two weeks before the murder, Greg's mortgage was placed in default due to non-payment. Federal law requires 120 days before foreclosure can begin, so it's not like he was on the verge of homelessness. He had about four months to figure it out. Now, the problem with Shakita leaving at this point was that she out-earned him. It would be a lot harder for Greg to catch back up and then stay caught up without her income. Things were bad enough that on February 18th, the day before the murder, Greg went to his boss for a loan from the company. He told his boss he needed the money because his brother had been charged with murder. And that was not true in the least. The boss turned him down because not only was it not financially feasible for the company at the time, Greg already had a loan out from the company and his checks were already being garnished to pay it back. According to the boss, Greg seemed pretty distraught when he turned him down. Greg was in a financial bind, and the pressure was probably mounting, particularly if Shakita was looking at leaving him and taking her income and her half of any community property with her. The investigators, of course, had to look at any life insurance policies, and they found that Shakita did have one that was worth a quarter million dollars. That said, Greg was only one of the beneficiaries, and his share would have been around sixty to $65,000. Now, that's not a quarter million dollars, but it's also not nothing, and it would have been enough to get him out of his immediate financial issues. People have certainly killed for zero dollars before, so it did seem like an added layer to a possible motive. But what really ended up sealing this case was the forensic evidence. Let's start with the bleach bottle in the kitchen. The stains were blood, and two mixed DNA profiles were found on the bottle, Shakita's and Greg's. Also in the house, What have been characterized as dots of blood were found, though nothing as obvious as bloody clothes or a bloody knife. And there is a bit of a gap in this evidence. There's lots of blood at the crime scene. There's a little bit of blood at the house, but there was none in the seat of Greg's car that he would have sat in as he drove home. None on the steering wheel, the gear shift, the door handle, anything. 
there was only blood found on one thing in the car. They found a pair of tinted lens Nemesis safety glasses under the seat. On the left lens, they immediately noticed a blood smear. The glasses were processed in the lab, and the blood on the left lens was Shakita's. Additional blood was found on the right arm, and that was a mix of Greg and Shakita's DNA. When the glasses came back with Shakita's blood on them, that is what the prosecutor needed, and she immediately filed to have Greg Harris charged with second-degree murder. He was arrested on March 16th, not quite a month after the murder. But I have to say, the DNA results were a little bit of a mixed bag because this isn't all that came back. They had tested Shakita's fingernails. She had fought back, after all, and during the interrogation with police, they had noticed some scratch marks on Greg. They did find Greg's DNA under her nails but they also found an unknown man's DNA. That was handing the defense an alternative suspect, if not with name, with his biological material. But even so, the state believed they could overcome this with the totality of the evidence against Greg Harris. After Greg's arrest, his attorney told CNN that his client was innocent and that there was nothing in his background to indicate otherwise. But the police learned that was not entirely true. There were multiple things in his past, and they were all previous accusations of intimate partner violence. It wasn't just with Shakita. Greg previously dated a woman named Charlene in 1998 and 1999. She said things were great until they moved in together and she saw another side of Greg. It was characterized as a Jekyll and Hyde situation, where Greg was sweet and charming and kind one minute and in a blind rage the next. Charlene had multiple examples of Greg not just throwing things around, but also hitting her. One time, his brother had to pull him off of her. He was also jealous, accusing her of cheating and sneaking around. One day she went to work on her day off to make up for some hours she had missed, and he flipped out, refusing to believe that she was actually going to work. Another case the police found was pulled from a police report from May 2005. Greg had a child with a woman named Parthena, and they were, at the time, living together. They had an argument that turned physical, and she chose to make a police report. But she didn't want charges to be pressed. She just wanted it to be documented should it happen again. Both women told authorities that Greg was controlling in their relationship. This would back up the state's theory that Greg was losing control of Shakita, and he couldn't handle it. In mid-April 2009, Greg made bail about a month after being charged with Shakita's murder. The police immediately re-arrested him on a stolen property charge. Now, I'm not sure what the stolen property charge was related to, as it was just mentioned in passing in an article, but he did quickly bond out on that as well. Then a couple of days after he got out of lockup, Greg became a victim himself, not of murder, but of attempted murder. He was home sleeping when someone fired multiple shots into his bedroom around 3 a.m. The shots were definitely aimed at him as they went through his bedroom window and into his headboard. Greg, however, told the police that he had actually fallen asleep on the couch that night, so he wasn't even in his room. It looked to some people like someone was trying to silence Greg, and it was just luck that he had dozed off on the sofa. But not everyone thought it was luck. The state, getting ready for trial, wondered if this, like the love triangle tip, was just meant to distract. It was another setup by Greg to point away from him. But as far as I can tell, they never discovered for sure who fired 
those shots. Going into the trial, the state and the defense went to war initially about what would be allowed in. The defense, of course, wanted all of the discussion on intimate partner violence out, while the prosecution wanted it all in. Not just what happened between Greg and Shakita, but also the previous incidents. The defense gave the good old, more prejudicial than probative argument, but the judge disagreed. The testimony would be in, and here is the thinking on why it was allowed. The statements made by Parthena, and in particular Charlene, were almost identical to what Shakita said on her 911 call and to the police afterwards. Charlene said Greg would flip out if he suspected she was with other men, which is exactly what Shakita said. Charlene said that Greg would call her nasty and complained about the cleanliness of their house. Shakita said the same thing. Charlene said that he hit her and put his hands around her neck, attempting to strangle her. And so did Shakita. These weren't random outbursts of violence, but rather a pattern of behavior, so the judge allowed it in. The trial began in March 2011, and Greg was facing second-degree murder, which initially confused me. The state was arguing that this was premeditated and planned. They said that Greg lied about Shakita calling him to ask that he bring her food. Their evidence was that he did go to a McDonald's to get food, but he went to the one near their house, not the one near her office. So by the time he drove 25-30 minutes to her office with the food, it would have been cold. Danita, Shakita's sister, said that Shakita had actually already eaten Wendy's that day, so it didn't make sense that she would be hungry again. The state was saying that this was a ruse by Greg to get Shakita to let him up into the office and also a reason to give the police later as to why he was there. Additionally, they believed he brought with him the hair to plant at the scene to make it look like a woman committed the crime. And to explain the lack of blood transfer, they were arguing that he took other precautions not to get too much blood on him. All of that would have required planning. So the theory of this crime was that Greg premeditated this act, and that is what we think of when we think about first-degree murder. But Louisiana likes to do things their own way. There are 12 ways to commit first-degree murder in Louisiana. The premeditated killing of one person in their 30s who is not a police officer and also not a taxi driver currently driving their taxi, who is also not killed while the murderer happens to be committing a different crime of a certain list, well, that's simply not one of them. In Louisiana, the most Greg could be charged with for this crime under these theories was second-degree murder. Now, the state laid out their theory of the case, and the jury heard the recording of the argument between the two, where Greg said what goes around comes around. They heard the 911 call from the DV incident, which was very difficult for Shakita's family to hear for the first time because she was so scared and distraught on it. As far as testimony goes, the jury heard from Greg's exes, who called him controlling and abusive. They heard from Lessie, Shakita's legal assistant, who dismissed much of Greg's story. He said Shakita was staying later because of a deposition, and Lessie explained to the jury that just isn't how it works. To take a deposition, it requires both sides to know where and when it is, they agree on terms, and they have to have a court reporter scheduled to document it. None of that was set up. There was no deposition that night, and honestly, there never had been one that late in the time Lessie had worked with Shakita. So let's say Greg misspoke, and he just meant she had a meeting, he doesn't know the difference between a deposition and an interview, on and on, whatever. He said the wrong word. Well, Lessie was Shakita's legal assistant. She would have known if Shakita was meeting with someone and there was no such meeting on the agenda. She also said Shakita did not meet with clients that late in the evening. Greg's story just didn't make sense. 
The jury also heard about the blood evidence, the bleach bottle, the house, the safety goggles. They were also shown the interrogation video of Greg, particularly the part where he admits to having been on the same street the wallet was found. The defense argued that, yes, there was blood in the house, but not nearly for it to be because of the murder. Where was all the blood Greg would have gotten on his clothes on the seat of his car? The blood on the bleach bottle could have just been from Shakita cleaning up her own clothes. Maybe she bled through something during her period. The defense really leaned, as expected, on the male DNA that was not Greg's that was found under Shakita's nails and suggested that was the real killer. And maybe it wasn't even a single killer. Due to how swiftly the person managed to clean up as to not leave a blood trail, possibly there were two people involved. After closing statements of the 16-day trial, the jury left to deliberate. Less than four hours later, they came back with a verdict. Guilty. And Greg's side of the courtroom began crying. And then they finished the verdict. They found Greg guilty, but not of second-degree murder. They found him guilty of manslaughter. And at that point, Shakita's family became upset. The defense and the prosecution were both confused. Manslaughter was a lesser-included charge that the jury was allowed to consider. However, no one argued it. The defense argued Greg Harris didn't do it. The prosecution argued clear intent to kill Shakita and planning. That doesn't fit manslaughter. The jury's reasoning was that they thought Greg killed Shakita, but it was likely due to an argument and it was in the heat of passion. Again, no one argued that theory. No evidence of an argument that night was presented by Greg's side or the state. There were no witnesses to it. Yet, it's what the jury decided. And in a twist that gives me a chance to talk about yet another way Louisiana law decides to be just so quirky, this was an 11-2 verdict. One person did not vote for manslaughter. They voted for second-degree murder. In every other state in 2011, except Oregon and Louisiana, this would have meant a hung jury and a mistrial. But at the time, these two states allowed non-unanimous jury verdicts. In both states, the non-unanimous jury verdict was made law for the express purpose of making it easier to convict people from minority groups. Literally, that was the stated purpose. Maybe we can tackle the origins of Oregon's law in another episode because it is slightly different than Louisiana's, but this is a Louisiana case, so that's what we're going to talk about. We need to go back in time to after the Civil War. The United States now has a lot more citizens as slavery was outlawed. In a period called the Reconstruction Era, the United States had to determine what this meant as far as civil rights went. There were then three amendments to the Constitution ratified, and the two that apply here are the 14th, which said states couldn't deny anyone equal protection under the law, and then the 15th, which gave Black men the right to vote. With the right to vote, it also gave Black men the right to sit on a jury. So what happened in reaction to the federal government's Reconstruction Laws? Many states began passing laws called Jim Crow laws, designed specifically to sidestep civil rights. In this case, the people in charge in Louisiana thought that allowing Black men on a jury meant that they would never be able to convict a Black person again. A single Black juror could force mistrials in the cases of Black defendants. That would make him the most powerful person on the jury. Obviously, the logic behind this thinking itself is racist. The idea that a Black person couldn't be fair and objective, however white jurors could be. By allowing a split verdict, the white majority on the jury would still ultimately control the outcome of the trial. 
After The Advocate published a series of articles not just pointing out the origins of this law, but also the current racial implications and disparities in verdicts because of it, the voters of Louisiana took it to the polls. They voted on a new amendment in 2018 that prohibited non-unanimous verdicts starting January 1st, 2019. This did not apply to any case before that point. This law was then backed up in 2020 when the Supreme Court ruled in Ramus v. Louisiana that non-unanimous verdicts did violate a defendant's constitutional rights. Later, in Edwards v. Vinoy, they did rule that this would not be retroactively applied in federal review. So if you have exhausted all your state appeals, you could not use this for your federal habeas petition. So while it seems like the change in law from Greg's 2011 conviction until now might give him grounds for an appeal, it really hasn't because his case is one of the many excluded from reconsideration due to this not being retroactively applied in either the state appellate process or the federal. At sentencing, Greg was given the maximum for manslaughter, which is 40 years, and the judge said this was to be without benefit of probation, parole, or suspension of sentence. He would have to serve the entire time. Greg did appeal, and part of that was his sentence. Apparently, the trial judge did not have the authority to prohibit parole in this case, as that authority lies solely with the Louisiana Committee on Parole. But the appellate court said that that was something that could be corrected without doing a full resentencing hearing. The intention of the trial court was clearly to give him the maximum possible sentence, so that could be remedied easily enough. As for the errors at trial, of course, allowing in the other DV incidents came up, and the appellate court just did not find that persuasive. There was an interesting issue that was raised about the trial judge. This case was not moved out of the area, and Shakita was popular in the law community. It would have been hard to find someone who absolutely didn't know her. Even the prosecutor had gone toe-to-toe with Shakita in court. In this case, the trial judge, Trudy White, had Shakita as a law clerk while Shakita was a student. Greg's appeal was saying this wasn't fair and she was therefore clearly biased towards the prosecution. But the problem for Greg was that Judge White disclosed this connection early on in the process and his attorney did not object. You have to raise issues at the earliest point or you essentially waive them. And that's what the appellate court said he did here. But they did go even further in their evaluation of the situation. Even if he wasn't procedurally barred from bringing this up at this point in the process, they did not see that there was a clear conflict here. Shakita did know Judge White. She was one of many student clerks she had had. But that was about it. And they pointed to two things in order to demonstrate this. And these were Shakita's wedding and her funeral. Judge White was not invited to the wedding and she said she wouldn't have expected an invite even if Shakita had a huge guest list. And Judge White also didn't attend Shakita's funeral. Just pointing out that whatever relationship they had was really just in passing. So this was another point that didn't really go anywhere with the appellate court. Greg's current battle is that he wants the DNA from under Shakita's nails that wasn't his to be tested. And specifically, he wants it to be tested against a man named Denard Duhart. Now, Denard had two brothers named Darius and Donaco. They were both charged with murder in 2007, and Shakita was representing, I believe, one of them at trial, possibly both. These charges against both of them would later be dropped due to the shooting deaths of three other witnesses. But that was well after Shakita's murder. According to Greg, the Duhart brothers had motive to kill Shakita. If she was killed, it would delay their case. Obviously, they would get a continuance. Now, it couldn't have been 
the brothers themselves, the two that were on trial, because one of them was behind bars at the time and the other one had an alibi. So Greg's case is that it was their third brother, Denard, who hasn't really been looked into for this crime. I do have to imagine Greg somewhere has more of an argument here because this motive would not really have gotten the brothers very far. Shakita had another case that was going to trial before this one, and that guy was given 30 days to find new representation. So even if the Duhart brothers did get a continuance, it would likely be similar to this, 30 days to find new representation and then get it on the calendar. It's not like a couple of months really made a difference in how this case turned out. And there was also no indication that they were unhappy with Shakita's work in their case. It does make sense, though, that any alternative suspect would have been someone who had an excuse to see Shakita at night. Like I said, this was a locked building after 5.30 p.m. No one used a key card to get in all night, so it definitely would have been someone that Shakita or someone else in the building let in. Now, Shakita would have let Greg in, so would she have also let in the brother of a client? I mean, it's possible. Greg's side wants Denard's DNA tested against the scrapings from under Shakita's fingernails. Denard died in 2013, so the DNA would be the only way to get any answers because obviously he cannot be questioned. And honestly, while I find this specific theory unpersuasive, I am all for DNA testing in pretty much every case. Because here's the thing. Do you remember the Diane and Alan Johnson episode? I covered it back in July 2021. So if you want to check it out, I recommend it. In that case, there were unidentified fingerprints on the murder weapon, and the defense used that as reasonable doubt at trial, much like Greg Harris used the DNA as reasonable doubt at his trial. But these fingerprints were later matched to someone who had a completely benign reason for his prints being on the gun. The gun belonged to a friend of his, a friend he recently helped move. This man had a full alibi, and by matching the prints, they actually were able to rule out that path as a claim of innocence. Whether evidence benefits the state or the appellant really shouldn't matter to us. The evidence is the evidence, and it is what it is, and it should all be tested. Resistance in testing evidence just annoys me. Now, Greg Harris's last post-conviction relief filing was denied in 2016. Barring any other successful appeals, he will be in his 70s before he's released from prison. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 